Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. The following podcast contains explicit language, by which we mean potty talk. It's Wednesday, May 16th, 2018 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Okay, here's a fun test to see if you and your mate are compatible. I need you to stand in opposite corners of the room. Now run at each other at full speed. All right, I I guess I should mention you should probably listen to all the instructions before attempting this experiment. Okay, ready? Run at each other at full speed. Make sure the run takes at least two seconds because one second in, I am going to say a word. And depending on the word you hear, I want you to either stop or run faster. And the run faster word, if you hear this word, I need you to run faster, the word is laurel. And the stop word is yanny. Okay, you ready? To your corners. Three, two, one. Laurel. Laurel. Did you, did you both stop? You guys are compatible. You both hear each other. That's fundamental to a good relationship. Did you both run faster? Okay. You're on the same wavelength. You're clearly wrong. But, you know, you hear what you hear. This is going to be a tempestuous affair. It's going to flame out, but that's fine. Now, did one of you stop and one of you run faster? You are welcome. I have saved you a lifetime of hurt while inflicting this a moment of hurt. Oh, by the way, uh, my lawyer said, uh, by listening to this podcast, I am hereby indemnified, blah, 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 uh, under God. Please subscribe to upon further review. Okay. You see, the lifetime of hurt will go like this. Conversations where you say... You don't hear me, or it's like I'm speaking another language. And you thought these were just figures of speech for couples therapy. No, it's science. It's legit. You just literally can't hear the other person. So you know what I'm talking about, right? This Laurel Yanny thing, that recording is literally heard differently by different people. Some hear Laurel, some hear Yanny, and it has to do with uh, the wavelength and if it's a high or low sound. But what if this goes beyond, we just have this one example. Laurel and Yanni. What if this is omnipresent and no one even thought to note it? No one even asked the person next to them, hey, are you hearing what I'm hearing? For instance, what if one set of ears in the world hears a word that sounds like collusion, but another hears adoption? We cannot prove that that's not going on. Yanni or Laurel, Laurel or Yanni. I mean, what if all these years we have all just been hearing things differently? Is it a lap dog or a yap dog? I mean, a lot of lappy dogs are yappy dogs, so we can't be sure. What if St. Louis Cardinals catcher Yadier Molina were really St. Yui catcher Ladier Lomina all this time? So uh, what if? I have a podcast about what ifs. Did I mention it? It's called Upon Further Review. Please subscribe to it. 
What if you did? You'd be a good person, a better person. You'd be helping me out. You'd be fueling observations and questions like this. What if a yard sale were a lard sale? And that's why no one showed up, because the neighborhood was good with schmaltz. What if yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker, were really lippy Kalal Marvin Hamlish? Not sure how Marvin Hamlish got in there, but he's an EGOT. What if Rory and Lorelai, the Gilmore girls, were really Rorel and Yorayai, the Gilmore guys, this whole time? Lorky Dooney went to town riding on a ponal, stuck a feather in his cap and called it macaronal. What if Napoleon were Napoleon? What if my Italian dad was trying to get my attention by saying yo, and my Jewish mother would always add oi? What if what they were really doing the whole time were just saying LOL? LOL. They were texting out loud. They were early adapters, early adapt, early. What if adverbs? Didn't end in L-Y, but Y-L. So it wasn't Lee, it's oh, Real yill? Total yill. Serious yill? Yitteral yill? Well, not yitteral yill, yitteral yill, but, you know, yitteral yill. What if the Yalta Conference were the Malta Conference? Would we be speaking German now? If so, the word Lorenschaften, reserved for Germanic nobility, would be Janischlupfter which is the Germanic word for the tawny tit spine tail. So you mean to address a lord and you wind up calling him a tawny tit spine tail. What if lorazepam, the sedative, were really all this time yanazepel, which is a type of fermented guava known to cause hallucinations about the tawny tit spine tail? What if the Lorax were Yertle the Turtle all along? What if your lawfully wedded wife were your law-awfully wedding wife? When I heard this, I was in disbelief. I really thought they were locking my chain. What if Yucky was lucky? We're up all night to get some. We're up all night for good fun. We're up all night to get yucky. It kind of obviates the need for weird I Lenkovich. What if what the Yanni hearers and the Laurel hearers went something like this? So it's the opening of uh, CSI, and there's uh, Horatio, David Caruso's character, and you know he says something quippy, then he puts on his glasses, then the song plays. So what if it seemed like this? Well, it looks like the private school teacher had a side business harvesting pot. I guess you could call it the Dead Grow It Society. But what if to the Yanni world, it was more like this? The Dead Grow It Society. What if that song, Yakety Sacks, were really Lackety Slacks? What if Law and Order were Yaw and Lauder? What if the signature sound of Law and Order was not babonk, but. What if when you go down south, they don't say y'all, they say nah. -ah. This is all incredible, frightful yill, profound yill, unconventiony. It upends our myths like Paul Bunlar, and it makes me reach for the millianta. On the show today, I spiel about an irksome aspect to the coverage of Gaza, and that's called the transition, folks. But first, we lay the predicate to that spiel with an interview with the U.S.'s longest-serving ambassador to Israel in the last 30 years. The Defender is a beautiful car, but beauty is, of course, sometimes only skin deep. Not with the Defender. Let's talk about the interior. 
robust, built with integrity. Yes, it's designed iconically, the exterior. That's what compelled me. My, my neighbor Jay says, Mike, you see what's on the block? It's a defender. And I look down the block and indeed there is. And me and Jay the neighbor and Michelle, we gather around the defender. We peer in the window. I have to say, I don't want to make this a too tawdry, but we lust or perhaps we gvel. To drive the defender is to explore with greater confidence. We looked at the cargo capacity, more room for the gear. There's really a wide range of adventures. The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com Defender. So on Israel, I have more questions than answers. This perhaps makes me unique in the media, or at least people with a podcast. So I will be joined by a person whose job it was to create solutions and better outcomes in Israel, but also a person clearly with opinions. He is Dan Shapiro. He was the ambassador to Israel in the Obama administration. He's now a visiting fellow at the Institute for National Security Studies, which is a think tank in Tel Aviv. Hello, Ambassador Shapiro. How are you today? I'm well. Good to be with you. And having more questions than answers is the correct approach <laughs> to the Middle East, I assure you. Question one is, could the Israeli security forces have somehow used less lethal force to quell the attacks on the fencing and the wall? You know, it's a very hard question to answer because it really depends on very specific information and circumstances that are almost unknowable without being present at the scene. Well, here's what we do know. We do know that what has been taking place is a combination of uh, violent acts, that is, uh, things lobbed at the fence, over the fence, shot at Israeli troops and uh, even communities on the other side of the fence and attempts to damage the fence, and nonviolent protests all mixed together. There are uh, definitely unarmed civilians who are at the protests. There are definitely Hamas fighters who are doing violent acts, and it's all in a very chaotic situation, obscured by the smoke of burning tires and so forth. And so, you know, when uh, the Israeli forces are trying to prevent the fence from being breached, which could lead to a, a large rush of people through, which could create a very, very dangerous situation, and they're responding purely to some violent acts, and sometimes these violent acts are literally taking place adjacent to where uh, there are unarmed people, obviously there are going to be cases where you have civilian casualties. It may be that the lion's share of the responsibility lies on the terrorist organization that put them in that position. But, you know, we as the democratic societies and, and certainly the militaries of democratic societies have to uphold our values to do everything possible and then redouble yet again every effort to prevent uh, civilian casualties. One thing the Israeli military has done in the past is investigate cases where civilians have been killed. I hope they will do that in, in this case. That's been their pattern. So I know that the concern is if the Gazans breach security, flood into Israel proper, there is there are settlements right there. These are people, many of these people have literally vowed to do harm to Israel, Israelis to wipe them off the map. Some of them have weapons now. However, isn't it the case that there are just many, many Palestinian Israelis who could get to the settlements from the other side and do that damage also? 
Well, let's. Uh, there's some mixed up terms in there, so let me just sort of uh, sort it out linguistically, which will help answer the question. Mm-hmm. First of all, when we talk about settlements on the Israeli side, these are not settlements as in West Bank settlements, this, the areas that are in dispute and controversial in the West Bank that Palestinians hope to have as their state. These are towns and kibbutzim and communities in Israel proper, uh, well on the Israeli side of the uh, Israel-Gaza border, which Israel withdrew to in 2005. And there's not any dispute, or there shouldn't be, that that is sovereign Israeli territory. That's a a sign that this is not a purely kind of protesting for uh, the rights and freedoms of people in Gaza, much as they have a legitimate right of peaceful protest. Uh, There's an actual threat here to actual civilians in undisputed sovereign Israeli territory. Then you talk about Palestinian Israelis. There are many Arab citizens of Israel who are of Palestinian origin. There's maybe a million and a half to two million of them. Generally speaking, these are uh, perfectly law-abiding citizens who participate fully in Israeli democracy. I can't say there's nobody, and every once in a while one does hear about a a violent incident, but this is not a population that uh, is deemed a threatening population, uh, certainly not to their fellow uh, Israeli uh, citizens. Now, there are, then there are Palestinians who live in the West Bank, and uh, some among them number some sympathizers of Hamas. Obviously, there you have the Israeli military in control of much of the West Bank, if not the, directly in those Palestinian cities. They have limits on their ability to move and, and, and impose those kinds of, pose those kinds of threats. So the answer is no. There really isn't an analogous threat to those towns uh, on the Israeli side of the border in Gaza from anything uh, coming from the other direction. It's The threat is that Hamas activists and and others will do what they say they're going to do, breach the border, get in. This is part of their return to Israel or to what they consider historic Palestine as part of their ideology of destroying the state of Israel. So I've been thinking about this and trying to find analogies to uh, help me with my moral reasoning. And I have been thinking about the idea that the fault probably lies, or at least much of the fault lies with those who court death or at least grievous injury, which is... Is, uh, the Hamas and at least many of these uh, protesters are witting participants in that. And yet, I think about then why were we as Americans sympathetic with citizens of East Berlin who were machine gunned down trying to breach the Berlin Wall? Similar odds, possibly a death mission. Is it just the, the goodness of the underlying cause and it has nothing to do with the tactic? I guess the cause has a lot to do with it. People in East Berlin were struggling to reach freedom. They were living under a an oppressive communist dictatorship, and they were trying to get out, uh, essentially, of those circumstances. And they were being, of course, shot by by the guards on their own side, trying to keep them from getting out. People in Gaza are living in horrific circumstances. I don't want to minimize that at all. The economy has collapsed. The electricity and water infrastructure has collapsed. The health conditions are deteriorating. And it's understandable that people are looking for ways of tasting a freedom that they don't enjoy there. But they are being organized in this case and sort of whipped up by their own leadership uh, with an ideology, which they're very open about. They don't make any pretense uh, that they have another agenda which is to work toward destroying the state of Israel. Obviously, the individual Palestinians crossing are not going to be able to do that, but that is their ideology. They have previously squandered huge resources on rockets, which they have fired at Israeli civilian communities. Now Israel can counter that with missile defense systems. They've squandered huge resources on building tunnels under the border in order to have the ability to conduct terrorist attacks. Israel now has technology to detect and counter those tunnels. What they have left is putting their own people in harm's way as a way of 
try and demonstrate their relevance and, and sort of take the eyes off their own contribution to the humanitarian crisis. There's a lot that Israel can do, has done in the, fa- in the past, and I think more can be done, certainly more Egypt can do, and more the international community can do, and, and legitimately we should all be doing more to ease the humanitarian conditions in Gaza. But we are dealing with a terrorist organization that has chosen to rule that, and I would say press that people, with that ideology and in such a way that their neighbors all feel so threatened by them, you can't even have the sort of normal freedom of movement and crossing of borders that one would ideally want to have. I absolutely hear what you're saying. I want to have another crack at it and just preface it by saying, again, I've been trying to think about this. I focus on the tactics and then I focus on the overall points of each side. And I think about the United States and the Ferguson riots and how Martin Luther King said a riot is the language of the unheard. So is that only true when the unheard have a good point? It would seem to me that if you take Martin Luther King's words at their value and you're Israel and you actually don't want for both practical and moral reasons to have 60 people dead on your hands, maybe you should think about things in a different, more Martin Luther King-esque way. This is, goes back to our earlier, earlier part of our discussion. If, if we were dealing with a situation where a purely, literally purely peaceful group of people sort of approach the fence, uh, not in a threatening way, but to make their point heard and to have the international media observe them and have the Israeli people uh, understand what they were seeking, which it's hard to know what, I mean, what that agenda would be. If it's give us more aid, give us freedom of movement, something, these are the types of things that I think would be, you know, a lot closer to the analogy you just uh, described than when you have... Well, no, it wasn't in uh, Ferguson. I mean, the, the exact same things were said about the riots in 68. I mean, as post-King's assassination in Ferguson. If people were peaceful and just stuck flowers in the muzzles of the policemen's guns, things would be fine. These things get out of hand. Tires get burnt. Sometimes Molotov cocktails get thrown. It makes the decision a little bit harder, morally. Well, sure. We say a terrorist organization. This is a militarily organized body, Hamas. Their means are, have been tunnels, their means have been rockets, and they are trying to, to physically destroy a fence, which does uh, it does represent Israel's uh, uh, sort of legitimate border. These are the things that any, I think, country, any military uh, has the right to defend itself against. Obviously, you want to try to do everything possible to avoid unnecessary casualties. Are the Gazans more oppressed than the people living in the West Bank, or is what we're seeing the differences in response largely a referendum on Hamas versus the Palestinian Authority? In the West Bank, uh, most Palestinians live under the Palestinian Authority. It's a kind of autonomy. It is not full independence. They have many complaints, but by and large, their needs have been better met. Their economy has been able to perform better. They have enjoyed the benefits in that sense, in terms of their their quality of life. It's not the highest quality of life, but a better quality of life than Gaza. And one of the great causes of that is that there has been very professional, very effective security cooperation between the Palestinian Authority security forces and the Israeli military and, and other security organs. They communicate, they cooperate, they share information about threats from Hamas and other terrorist groups, and they prevent them. And that has enabled a, a certain degree of freedom of movement and commerce, uh, which has enabled a, 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 a more peaceful atmosphere. It's not ideal. I'm not trying to call it West Bank paradise, but certainly a more peaceful atmosphere than Gaza, where certainly uh, those who are, if they have the courage to, to speak up uh, against Hamas, uh, they, they are putting themselves and their families at grave risk. But also because they are living uh, under an authority that has chosen to be on a permanent war footing, despite the terrible 
poverty and and, uh, and humanitarian conditions. Instead of focusing on fixing those, it focuses on being on a permanent war footing with its neighbor and attacking its neighbor. They've been subject to the consequences and the repercussions of that, including three wars in the last 10 years and these multiple spikes of, uh, of violence uh, like this week. So you support moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. Does that mean that previous administrations, specifically the one you worked for, was wrong to have overemphasized the costs or not seen the benefits? Where did their error lie, the one that you worked for? No, I don't think there was an error there. When the uh, Jerusalem Embassy Act passed the Congress in 1995, it included a waiver authority that allowed the president to delay its implementation for six months at a time if the national security interests required it. And President Clinton and President Bush and President Obama and even President Trump early in his term all used that waiver to delay that. And I think for very legitimate reasons. During most of that period, we had either ongoing negotiations between Israelis and Palestinians or a very active effort to restart negotiations between them. And I think it was quite sensible to say that the United States uh, should delay making a move that had some connection to, even if not directly to the outcome of the negotiations, but some connection to the, one of the most sensitive issues in the negotiations while there were negotiations ongoing or, or attempting to be restarted. So I think the use of that waiver was very legitimate. Now, President Trump inherited a somewhat different situation. After two failed attempts at negotiations during the Obama administration, there have been no negotiations with between Israelis and Palestinians since 2014. There are, are no negotiations ongoing, and there's no real prospect of negotiations. President Abbas of the Palestinian Authority and Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel completely mistrust one another. They've, they've had many, many encounters and uh, events between them that have built up a wall of distrust, and they are both constrained by very, very severe pol- domestic political circumstances. Abbas nearing the end of his political life and uh, succession struggle, and of course, the rivalry with Hamas, Netanyahu leading a very right-wing government that's dominated by voices that oppose a two-state solution and now embroiled in corruption uh, investigations that uh, limit his political flexibility. So there aren't going to be negotiations uh, anytime soon. And so in that circumstance, there's nothing that you're delaying or or nothing that you're benefiting by the delay. And moving, I think, is a, a reasonable position. And here's the other reason. It's reasonable, but also what positive can come out of it. Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. It always has been. That's really not a mystery. When I served at our embassy in Tel Aviv, virtually every day I'd get in my car and we would drive to Jerusalem and I would conduct the affairs of state with the Israeli government in their offices there. And the embassy is located in West Jerusalem, which was Israel's territory from the beginning of the state in 1948 and would remain Israeli territory in any plausible two-state solution. So in all of these regards, uh, this is uh, a reasonable uh, uh, thing to do. What the administration did, though, was make two very big mistakes. Mm-hmm. One was it did not frame that decision in the context of our broader strategic objective. What's our strategic objective? It's not where our embassy sits. It's ending the conflict. And there's only one end of the conflict. That's a two-state solution. And there's only one way a two-state solution happens, and that is if the Palestinians also achieve their aspirations for a capital in East Jerusalem. The second mistake was the date of the dedication ceremony. It was chosen to do it on May 14th, which is the 70th anniversary of Israel's founding on the secular calendar. It's not how Israelis celebrate it when President Truman recognized Israel. And so it had that symbolism. But that is also the day this week that Palestinians mark what they call Nakba Day. For them, it's their national tragedy, disaster of 
being dispossessed of their land when, when Israel was founded. And then tomorrow or today or night or tomorrow is the beginning of Ramadan. And so these are right. really among the most emotional days on the Palestinian calendar. You could have had that ceremony at the embassy in Jerusalem two weeks ago or two weeks from now, and it would have been the same ceremony, but not have contributed to stoking these tensions the way it did this week. Okay, I have one last question, and thank you for your time. And the question is this. A criticism of this move has been this really hurts the United States standing as an honest broker, that after this, the Palestinians cannot look to the United States as the entity, the powerful entity in between that can honestly uh, work out a deal on both sides. My question is, does that not greatly overstate how much of an honest broker the United States was seen as, I don't know, two years ago during your tenure for the last dozen years? Yeah, I was just about to say the Palestinian complaint that the United States is not an honest broker uh, is longstanding. It's been there for a long time. And uh, I don't know that it, it's definitely not new uh, uh, because of the uh, Jerusalem embassy uh, relocation. There's always a certain kind of tension between the United States having the special relationship it has with Israel, the strong commitment through Israel's history to its security on the one hand, and to be the honest broker that can uh, serve as the go-between that helps Israelis and Palestinians negotiate and hopefully resolve their conflict. There's a tension there, and that's that's inherent. There's not anything that's going to do about it uh, that can be done about that to some degree. The other reason that uh, you know we keep coming back to the United States as they're playing that role or trying to play that role is because of the lack of an alternative. It's very hard to imagine any other actor uh, giving uh, Israel the confidence to make the uh, concessions it will ultimately have to make, and also Palestinians the confidence that uh, those concessions will be forthcoming uh, because of that uh, that mediator's relationship with uh, with the other side. Now, in fairness to the Trump administration, which is not a phrase I often use, I don't think there is a prospect for negotiations right now, regardless of their approach. That doesn't mean they've done everything right. It doesn't just mean they've done everything wrong. What I do think is the question about whether or not the United States can again emerge as the honest broker that actually sponsors talks and that can succeed will be determined first and foremost by who the leaders are here to work with, and second, by what the U.S. approach is when that time comes. Uh, I don't rule out at all that the United States can, uh, can return to that role. Dan Shapiro was the U.S. ambassador to Israel for the majority of the Obama administration. Thank you so much, Ambassador Shapiro. My pleasure. Good to be with you. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. And now the spiel. So as we were talking about with the ambassador moving the embassy to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv, it was a momentous event. And of course, 50 miles away, there were those protests where 60 or so Gazans were killed and thousands more were injured. Now, these events were obviously linked. They were linked in that A... Both happened in Israel, small country, close to each other. B, there are both the most newsworthy things going on in Israel. C, this is pretty important, the participants in one 
uh, the people who attempted to breach the barrier in Gaza explicitly said over and over again that the reason they were performing their suicidal acts was in protest to the relocation of the embassy, the redefinition of the capital. There is no reasonable person on earth, I don't think, if you ask them, hey, what happened in Israel today? Because you didn't know. And that person were just trying to be a good friend and give you a good answer that that person wouldn't tell you both events closely linked, if not correlated to each other. That would have to be how you explained what happened in Israel today. It might be wrong to say that this was decidedly causal, but it would be crazy to act as if they weren't related. This attempt, to be clear, let's imagine the curious person who asks what happened in Israel. If you were trying to be a decent human on the earth, just trying to clearly tell said person what happened in Israel the other day, you would be a problem to Fox News. Here's Shannon Bream. Revisiting one of tonight's top stories following the opening of the new U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem, many journalists were quick to lay the blame on the Trump administration and Israel for deadly demonstrations at the Gaza Strip. And then Fox put together a montage of journalists from ABC, NBC, and CBS mentioning the clashes in Gaza in the same breath as the embassy opening. Their fury boiled over on Monday when the U.S. Embassy was officially moved to Jerusalem with President Trump's blessing. President Trump believes that moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem will actually make peace more likely by taking the city off the table. But for the people here and for virtually every single Palestinian, that makes no sense. There were more protests planned for today to mark the 70th anniversary of what Palestinians call their day of catastrophe following the founding of the State of Israel. More than 40 people dead today. And the White House isn't offering condolences. They're not offering any sort of heartfelt comments on the loss of life. Again, I don't see how one could talk about one thing without the other. I just don't see it. I'm not saying one caused the other. I'm just saying they clearly coincided. They were cited by the protesters as their motivation. You have to talk about both and how they relate. You know who agrees with me? Actual Fox reporters covering the story. Here was David Lee Miller. Instead of protesting, many Gaza residents found themselves at the funerals for the 60 people who died in yesterday's demonstrations, coinciding with the relocation of the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. Coinciding is fine, but this wasn't like the O.J. Chase and Game 4 of the 1994 NBA Finals. Two notable things that happened to be happening at the same time. No, these were two things that had something to do with each other. Writing in the magazine Commentary, Sorab Amari writes, The juxtaposition of Jivanka, that's Jared and Ivanka, and Benjamin Netanyahu celebrating in Jerusalem while Israeli forces opened fire on Palestinians at the Gaza border proved irresistible to reporters. Yeah, I guess people tasked with reporting the news, uh, they, they, they're drawn to that which is news. He goes on and says, the BBC's Caddy Kay, for example, was quick to point out that President Trump's warm words for the Jewish state came while there were, quote, 41 dead on the Israel-Gaza border today. That is called delivering the news. I suppose Caddy Kay could have paused for weather and the lotto numbers in between clauses of her sentence, but I appreciate her concision. A similar note was struck by commentaries Noah Rothman, who wrote on the front pages from Sacramento to Seoul, images of the bloodshed at the border were juxtaposed with images of American delegates happily dedicating their new embassy, implying, without explicitly stating, causality. You know where else you might find 
a front page with both those images, the front page of commentary, the website, and the Facebook page, and in their feed. On their podcast, they talked about the embassy moving and the Gaza deaths, often in the same sentence. On the site itself, okay, between pictures of Gaza bloodshed and the story saying the embassy moves, there was another story on Trump. But they were right there, right up against each other, because there were both news happening in the same day at the same place. So yes, you heard the interview with Dan Shapiro. Here's a man for half a dozen years, he worked in the Tel Aviv version of that embassy. The former ambassador told you he supports the move. I questioned him about the violence. He answered some factual questions. He made the point that Hamas ushered people to their deaths, that protesters slash terrorists put themselves in a position to die. He explained why he still supports moving the embassy. But at no point did either of us embark on the risible fiction that the move and the violence were unrelated. I've not tried to overburden you with my particular opinions on this. I actually am ambivalent about a lot of aspects of this. But it is a dereliction of truth to play a game where you deny plain fact and spend all your energy engaging in criticism of anyone who doesn't deny plain facts. Is this an effective PR strategy? Is shaming the media who report what happened, is that how things are played effectively in the West these days? You know, I... I am just a consumer of news. I came to my opinions with all those stories as reported by ABC and CBS and Caddy K and the New York Times. I read the unbiased news. I formed an opinion. The opinion wasn't the worst dreams of Noah Rothman or the writers in commentary or the commentators on Fox News, commentators slash hosts. I made up my own mind. I understood what was going on. I didn't need someone to tell me that it was wrong to say that the embassy moved and the Gaza deaths happened on the same day and to have said that in the same breath. In any case, we all saw what happened in Gaza, a provocation, perhaps justified, perhaps not, but a provocation provoked. Perhaps it provoked disproportionately, perhaps not, but a provocation provoked. Let us be plain about that fact. That's it for today's show. Just producer Pierre Bianame is Team Yanni, Dick Sargent, Second Becky, Blue Dress, and Team Jacob. He's a YDSSBBDJ. Mary Wilson, on the other hand, is a YDYFBGDE. She actually feels really strongly about the gold dress, making her a GDGD. Steve Lichtai is a YDSFBBDE handshot first subdivision. The gist... You may know me from such other podcasts as Upon Further Review. I think I'll have to mention it for a while because subscribing would really help this podcast and me check that out. But I should say the gist. We are a Laurel, Dick York, and whichever of those two guys isn't the werewolf. Oomperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com. We make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com.